I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're high in the Rocky Mountains in the ski resort of Big Sky, Montana, talking to Dan Egan. Dan's one of the greatest stars of American extreme skiing, and he's appeared in no less than 14 Warren Miller ski movies, and for the past 30 years, together with his brother John, he's been jumping off cliffs and making stomach-churning first ascents of quite impossibly steep mountains all over the world. Dan, welcome to our podcast. You made a golden career out of being a self-confessed ski bum. How did this all come about? Well, you know, we were a family of uh, seven kids who lived on a hill. And we used to, my mom just threw us all outside every day she could. And in the wintertime, we would sled, ski, you know, down that hill and build a jump over the, over the driveway into the neighbor's yard and over the fence. And we just played outside all the time. We lived uh, just two miles outside the city of Boston and just grew up playing outside. Now, you were the youngest. When our kids were growing up, they'd spend the whole morning building a kicker with friends. Then they'd get the youngest to do the first jump. If he landed it and survived, then the rest of them would go themselves. Yeah, we were, <laughs> I was often the test, the test dummy for sure, and, uh, and a lot of fun. <laughs> so when, how old were you when you first put on skis? Well, I probably, you know, I like to say my first proper ski was probably five when I went to a ski area. Prior to that, you know, I was flipping and flopping down the hill at the house. Um, but there was a ski club in Boston, uh, the Blizzard Ski Club. And uh, you could catch the bus out by the highway and they would take you up to New Hampshire to ski. And my mom joined all the kids up for the club and she put us all on the bus. She put my dad on the bus so she could have a day off and we would go up north with that ski club. And, you know, we would ski all day. And part of being part of the club is you had to take a lesson. So I took proper ski school lessons till I was 16. And that, that really was the beginning and the foundation. Learned how to ski through the Austrians who ran the ski schools in New England at the time, Paul and Paula Villar. And it was amazing. So we're talking about thin skis then, aren't we? You know, we're, yeah. we're going back into those days and much of your early career, some of the big Warren Miller films were on thin skis, skis where you really got in the snow. You didn't just sit on the top of it. Well, that's a fair statement that I don't think really until pretty much the, the after the peak of my career, I started skiing on shaped skis or fat skis. Prior to that, it was all straight skis. We filmed this year again for Warren Miller here in Big Sky, Montana for Future Retro. And I skied a line I hadn't skied in 25 years. The last time I skied it, I was on straight skis. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what a difference. I, it's, it's so amazing. Of course, technology and changes is awesome, and it really makes a difference. But on the straight skis, as you guys both know, there was a lot more motion. It was a lot more, uh, you had to be very proactive on the straight skis. Uh, it wasn't, you couldn't take things for granted, like slowing down or, or, you know, speed was really relevant, creating the energy popping up and out of the snow was really important. So often when I meet kids today, they always ask me, Hey, what was your big trick? And, and I always tell them staying alive was my trick. When you watch the new schoolers today go towards a cliff and 
they throw their skis sideways and they can almost skid towards the edge. We, we never had those options. We, we were knee deep, thigh deep in the snow, hoping for enough speed to clear, clear the rocks below. We were in it and they, were, they ski on it today. So were you in it or on it in Grand Targhee when I know you had a very strange experience with a, a, a cornice breaking beneath both you and your brother, right? Yeah, it's true. That was a, a big cornice, uh, the size of two, uh, you know, massive trucks, so to speak. It was over a 500 foot cliff and we were in the snow. We were skiing down along the ridge. And as I was skiing, I looked down and I could see daylight. So I saw a hole in the snow. So I, I leaped over the hole and landed on the cornice that broke. And when you talk about in it or on it, I was in it. I I was submerged in the snow and I felt like I had hit a wind drift. And as I was trying to get up and out, I didn't realize I was actually skiing off the piece that was breaking back to the mountain. Uh, John, who was in the back and about a turn and a half, two turns behind me, saw it break as he heads towards the, the cliff. Uh, as the cornice broke, he instead of stopping, he pushed. And that push saved his life. It gave him enough energy to airplane turn in the air and come back to the mountain. Well, that's one of the many experiences you had that were near-death experiences in lots of ways. But perhaps one of the biggest was on Mount Elbrus. I should explain that Mount Mont Blanc is the highest mountain in Western Europe, but Mount Elbrus is the highest mountain in the whole of Europe. Yeah, that's true. And uh, down there by Georgia, the Black Sea, uh, Casmian, it's off the Caspian Sea, sorry, off the Caspian Sea. And it's one of the seven summits of the world. And oddly enough, Elbrus kills more people than Everest. On our trip and back in 1990, that truly was the case. We lost over 30 climbers. There were 50 people trapped in the storm. Uh, and I was among uh, the, those trapped. Uh, we were trapped somewhere around 17,000 feet. And I was 38 hours without food or water. And how did you survive? Well, I was with three other climbers for my expedition. And we had joined up with a group of Russians. And we had dug snow caves uh, for the night, but the uh, snow caves were really spread out. It was 100 mile an hour winds, snowed five feet that night. That my two fellow climbers went to another snow cave and never told me. So I was abandoned in my cave. And uh, one of the Russians must have taken a head count because he went out in the storm and found my cave. And in the middle of the night, came into the cave. And I believe saved my life. He huddled with me, warmed me back up. I was having visions. I had seen the bright light. And Sasha said to me, tonight we sleep like brothers and uh, we survived the night. So that was quite a life-changing experience for you. It, it was in a lot of ways. You know, I was young, but my brother didn't want to summit that day and I did. So he was down below. He had rescued other climbers off of the mountain during the storm, but from a lower spot. And uh, I was, you know, like I said, I saw the bright lights and it had a major effect on me. The next day, Sasha and I rescued 14 people ourselves and eventually got down to uh, down off of the mountain. But the whole ordeal took 38 hours. And did you get frostbite or anything like that? Yeah, I have still, you know, even today when I ski, my feet all day yesterday were frozen. My feet were severely frostbit. My hands were severely frostbit. One of the climbers from my expedition had severe frostbite uh, that we took down. So there were several injuries in our little group and, and frostbite was definitely among them. So you've written this book now, 30 Years in a White Haze. Tell us about it. 
Well, yeah, 30 years. It's been 30 years since the El Bruce uh, accident. And the white haze sort of sums up the life of uh, following your passion and, and living on the edge and and being a, a, a ski bum all these years. Uh, life isn't always predictable. Uh, a lot of changes. And in the book, we recap uh, the El Bruce uh, accident had never been written about. I had put it in one of my ski films early on the extreme dream, but it was never fully explained the accident. So obviously El Bruce is a big part of the book, but really I weave together how two kids from Boston rose to the height that we did through Warren Miller. I mean, we were basically city kids who skied and there were a lot of things that fell into place to make our make it possible for us to have a pro careers for all this all this time. And when did your career in skiing begin? When did you start sort of making a living out of skiing? Well, my brother, John, six years older than me, and he, right out of high school, moved right to Sugarbush, Vermont in 1976 to be a ski bump. That was a real a move that really shook our family. We, we had never thought of anything like that. And, you know, I watched my brother go from a, you know, very, very awesome. He's a great athlete at the time, was a good skier, but in a very short time, go to a pro skier. He competed on the Pro Mogul Tour in the late 70s. He was on the Peugeot Pro Race Tour. He was the only, he's still the only person ever to compete on a freestyle tour and a race tour in the same year. And he did quite well. And he also got noticed by Warren Miller in 1979. He skied for, for Warren at Sugarbush. So I had seen that kind of unfold through my teenage years. I would visit John, watch the sort of lifestyle he was living, and it was fascinating to me. And so one year, the pro race came to a small little ski area outside of Boston, and John stayed at the family home. And when he was going to the race, he looked at me and said, Dan, today I'm, I'm, I'm wearing my work clothes. And he was in his padded sweater and his padded pants and he had his skis. And I was probably 14. And, and that comment really left a mark on me. I'm like, wow, he's going to work. I, I thought about that. And, and um, my thing was soccer. I played, I played American, you know, soccer football over there, of course. But uh, I was a soccer player. And through college, I decided I would try being a ski bum. So I, after the season, I took us some time off from college and moved to Sugarbush. And later that year, we both filmed for Warren Miller, 1985. It was a very small clip in the film, but that was the beginning of me dipping my toe in. I would later finish college before I started my career. For those people who don't know, can you explain quickly what Warren Miller is or who he is? Sure. Well, uh, Warren Miller is the most prolific American filmmaker of all time. He made more documentary ski films than any other American filmmaker, not just ski filmmaker. Warren was very prolific. He made a film every year. His company still does for over 70 years now. And Warren was the voice and the eyes and the ears of the uh, winter sports industry. He documented the growth of the ski resorts, the building of condominiums, the changing of technology and snowmaking, fashion, and of course, ski styles. And in the 80s, Warren started shooting at Squaw Valley and featuring skiers like Scott Schmidt and my brother John and Robbie Huntoon and Tom Day in his films. And that was exciting. That was the first time that the audience really saw skiers launching off of cliffs and skiing steep lines. And we review all this in the book to see how it got started. But Warren was that filmmaker, and he himself was a longtime dedicated ski bum who loved it. And he eventually came here to Montana to the Yellowstone Club, where he's, we've now uh, been without Warren for the last two years. 
Yeah, we've actually skied with his dog at the Yellowstone Club, but not with Warren. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, I'm just going to quote to you from your book here. I jumped my first cliff at Mad River Glen area in Vermont in the early 1980s. Since that day, I've been hooked on the thrill of heading towards the edge of a cliff and flying off it. I've come to call it the eternal now, when everything slows down and then bang, you land in a pillow of snow. I got a taste of that feeling and wanted more. Can you can you tell us in your own words why skiing is so important to you? Yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, it's sort of skiing represents in a lot of ways. And I think for many people, freedom, the feeling of gliding on over and through snow is really amazing. From the moment you push off of the lift, all decisions are yours, where you go, why you go there, how you go there, how fast you go there, how slow you go there. And the route down are all decisions you get to make. So as a young boy, that was very empowering. Skiing and sailing played a big part of my life because I think I was could be independent. And then the thought of pushing over an edge of a cliff and surviving it really became something that was curious to me, how high we could go, how fast could we go off it, how far could we drop, what did the landings need to be like. My brother John and I have a very unique talent. We can stand on top of a very large cliff, throw a snowball and say, our feet are going to land right there. You know, the cameramen would appreciate that because we could land within 12 inches of that spot, hit our marks and and do it side by side next to each other, either one one behind the other or right next to each other. And that was extremely exciting for filmmakers like Warren Miller. One of the problems is staying alive, of course, because as <laughs> extreme skiing developed, particularly in Europe, where I think you'd agree that the mountains are steeper in lots of ways. We had a, a series of famous very big stars like Patrick Van Anson, Jean-Marc Bovin, all died in accidents of various types. But but you guys kept going and you you developed it in North America in a, a slightly different way, right? We did. Uh, Patrick was a big uh, inspiration for us. So was uh, Jean-Marc uh, Provence. Uh, Savan Savan. All these guys were, you know, our heroes. We had their posters. We, John met Patrick in Chamonix. But, you know, what I say is that like all things in America, we glitz and glamoured extreme skiing. We packaged it. We sponsored it. We MTV'd it. I think the descents in Europe were a little bit more radical than what we were doing. They were more of the alpinist tradition. I, I tie our roots back to the freestyle movement of the 70s. It was more of an expression in America than it was sort of the pure alpinism of Europe. And that was always a big debate. Uh, going on. I still think it goes on today, but for me, and I think that was part of the learning curve in Europe as well. When I went went to Elbrus, you know, maybe what they were doing in Europe was slightly different than what we're doing in America. And I had to ponder that for a long time. And you and your brother have made more than 50 first descent around the world. Is that right? It's true. Yeah. We were known for skiing the most remote regions of the world, been up to the Arctic twice. We skied all throughout Europe, South America, Greenland, Russia, and we documented a lot of first descents. And again, those were radical lines and radical places where rescue really wasn't an option. So I think often a first descent or an extreme descent has to do with the situation around it, not always the pitch of the slope. And have you ever been really scared? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, fear is a motivator, right? And in my lectures and my talks, I talk about rational fear deserves a rational response. So if you're scared, make sure you do it right. The irrational response would be to do it wrong. I always use fear as a trigger to really focus in and, and execute technique, uh, make good decisions. I wouldn't say that we were ever above making mistakes. 
but fear for me was a motivator rather than a, some, a limiting factor. You pioneered heli skiing in Chile, is that right? We were definitely for one of the some of the first heli skiers in uh, in South America. We had our good friend ran the resort in Valley Nevado, and he was a sugarbush skier. Uh, and the whole ski school down there were sugarbush uh, instructors. So we had a great uh, operation in Portillo, and then we went over to Val d'Isere. I don't know that we were the first, but we were the first to really bring a lot of Americans down to the heli skiing in South America. And we were the first heli skiers in uh, Ushuaia on the southern tip of Argentina. John pioneered uh, heli skiing in Greenland. He set up the operation in Greenland that's still operating today. So we were always sort of on the edge of the travel experience and the on-snow experience. Yeah, I remember when we when Felice and I were skiing in Valle Nevada heli skiing and with a, a guide from Courchevel, actually, from Courchevel in France, who'd been coming there every year for years and he knew it very well. And we got up the top of the mountain, just as the three of us, I think, four of us, we landed and it was a lovely sunny day. We got out of the helicopter and he said some very important things. He said, firstly, guys, you can all ski, but you have to remember to breathe on every turn. If you don't breathe, you're going to fall over which is very true. And I, I looked up above us where we were, the helicopter landed on quite a wide sort of uh, little plateau. And there was a beautiful slope above us that looked really inviting. And I said, why can't we go up there? And he said, I've always wanted to, but, but we can't. And I said, well, why? He said, because a helicopter can't get there. Uh, <laughs> and that sums up how high you are, you know. It, it's really true. I mean, when you're heli skiing in the high I think the highest we ever took the bird down there was almost 14,000, maybe a little bit 14.5. They struggle a bit. And so, yeah, that's always a bit of a tease, isn't it? This was about that, about 15, about 15. Yeah. Just on that. <laughs> now, other things you've done, extraordinary things. The Berlin Wall, tell us about that. <laughs> well, you know, my ski career, we, we've always, we, I went to Warren Miller early when I first started working for Warren and I told him I wanted to follow CNN around the world. I wanted to go to where world events were happening. And we had been working in Val d'Isere that winter uh, filming and we were getting kicked out of our apartment. We couldn't afford it for the, the, the February break. <laughs> so we borrowed a van, quote unquote, and decided that we would head to the Berlin Wall and jump off of it. Of course, there's not much snow in Berlin. Uh, <laughs> And we took this borrowed van that had no papers, no insurance, uh, no registration, drove all the way over there. We had uh, seven nationalities in the van and a small baby, three-year-old. And it was a little bit of a stunt, of course, but it was also a point, you know, that skiing represents freedom. And I think for me, one of the most memorable times was when we jumped into no man's land landed in a dirt patch and a bunch of East German guards pulled up to us. And, you know, normally they would have shot you just months before us being there. None of them had guns. They, they were looking at a bunch of young American kids in bright clothes and skis. They were dumbfounded by why we would be doing this. And they pushed us back through the wall. But just that interaction with them was beautiful, you know, and to think about standing in no man's land where others have uh, weren't able to escape it was uh, very impactful. It was right after the wall came down. Have you jumped off anything else without snow, <laughs> without any snow there? You know, I've skied into uh, moving vans. I've <laughs> jumped uh, into pools 
and done some big jumps over buildings and things like that. But uh, yeah, that was that was a, a, probably the most historic place we jumped. We pursued that of that idea of going wherever CNN was. We went to uh, skied with the Kurds during the first Persian Gulf War on the border of Turkey and Iraq. We were in Yugoslavia a week before the war started and when Slovenia broke our way. We skied in Romania after the death of Ceausescu. So we would kind of link ourselves to these world events and try and bring a wider audience to our ski filmmaking. Hmm, That's interesting. And you'd have thought that Chamonix would be your favorite resort in Europe, but it's not, is it? It's Val d'Isere. Well, I do love Val d'Isere. We, we, you know, Val is really special spot. Of course, my good friend, friend Henry from Henry's Avalanche Talks lives there. We grew up racing together in Boston and have known each other since we were teenagers. And it's pretty amazing that two kids from the city became, you know, professional skiers. But we, we taught our camps in Chamonix for 25 years and we brought people into Chamonix for a very long time. But for a lot of years, we would do Chamonix and Val d'Isere. But Chamonix, as you know, has changed a lot over the years. And that lift system in Val d'Isere is really just second to none. The ease to move around the resort, the shuttle system's amazing in town. And so it just has become a friendlier place for me to kind of make my springtime home. I'm there about four or five weeks every year now. So where do you see yourself in the next five years? What do you think you'll be doing then? That's a question I've been getting since probably since my college (laughs) graduation, people would ask me that question. And the best answer I have to is I never want to predict because I don't want to sell myself short. I have a track record of going beyond my wildest dreams. And I hope the next five years will do that as well. I have another book planned called uh, Dying to Ski. It documents the loss of my 25 professional ski friends who have passed away while working. And I think that these these people need to sort of put put that into context, how it came to be, the birth of the Red Bull generation, the GoPro generation. All of this starts basically from, I follow these deaths from the late 80s, early 90s through current day and tie them together. I'm working on a, a documentary on Clyde Best, the soccer player who played for West Ham, who lives in Bermuda, who I got to meet during the America's Cup down there in Bermuda. And of course, I'll keep skiing for sure. My winter home here in Big Sky, Montana, my springtime home in Val d'Isere. And I still ski with a lot of people. Uh, if people want to come and ski with me, they can. And uh, if they don't, I'm out there skiing anyways. If people want to buy your book, where can they buy it? The book, the book's available on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, on all the big retailers. It's also available at white-haze.com. And of course, if you just Google Dan Egan, White Haze, it pops right up. Shortly here, we'll also have the audio book and the Kindle book. We'll be with it next fall. We're going to release a special limited edition hardcover copy of the book. The book's really special. You know, it has a lot of different elements in it. Of course, it has our story in it. But each chapter opens up with beautiful illustrations done by five different uh, illustrators and artists from around the world. And your ski clinics, if someone wants to join one of your ski clinics, how do they get hold of you? Yeah, of course. Uh, and I've always enjoyed skiing with both of you. So my camps are at skiclinics.com. You can, you can find our camps there. We do camps in the East Coast. We do camps here in Montana. We do uh, learn to heli ski camps uh, in Victor, Idaho. We do mastering the skiing mind in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, and of course, all spring, you can come ski with me from mid-March all the way to May 1st in beautiful Val d'Isere, France. Danny, you can thank you very much indeed for appearing on the show. And we wish you the very best of luck with your skiing career in the future. Thank you so much. Great to see you and hope to ski with you again real soon. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. That's all for now. 
If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com, or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe. And I am you. You are me. It's just a crazy storm.